one of the big burning questions facing most nonprofit organizations is how do we make more money? How do we keep the doors open? How do we keep uh, working on our mission? Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Events with Benefits, a podcast designed to help nonprofit organizations raise more money and achieve greater success at your fundraising events. Now, just before we get started with today's podcast, if you are a fan of our podcast, Please submit a review to iTunes. Give us a five-star rating, if you will. If you're going to take the time to rate us at all, you might as well make it good. <laughs> That'll help other people find us out there and uh, help them to learn more about event fundraising. Today's episode is brought to you by uh, uh, the three of us in this room right now. Ian Loth is the Vice President of Fundraising with Winspire. Ian, how are you doing? Doing great, Danielle. It's great to have you here. Um, I'm from Winspire. For those of you who are not familiar, hopefully you are. Uh, we put together travel packages for your live and silent auction as well as raffle prizes. Uh, there are absolutely no risk, no upfront costs to use them in your uh, event, and you keep all the proceeds above the nonprofit cost. And then we are a full-service travel agency, so we have, take great, great pride in whisking your donors away on their on their latest adventure. So please check us out. We're at winspireme.com. We'd love to talk to you about your next event. I love your concierge service. That's cool because when I sell a Winspire package at one of my auctions, I know everything's handled. They simply get in touch with the concierge, and all the details are looked after. Our next uh, co-host here is... Uh, Renee Zhao from Donation Match. Renee, how are you doing? Hi, I'm doing well, thank you. Glad to have you back here in SoCal. Um, we at Donation Match help charities find more items for their auctions, raffles, and gift bags. Just go ahead and sign up for free at donationmatch.com and see what you qualify for. And my name is Danny Hooper. I'm the... Uh, and I'm Danny Hooper. I am a fundraising auctioneer, professional fundraising benefit auctioneer specialist. I'm also the author of a best-selling book called Easy Money, How to Generate Record Profits at Your Next Fundraising Event. And you can find it on Amazon by searching for Danny Hooper. That's H-O-O-P-E-R. Or go to dannyhooper.com. We've got a great guest on today's show. And Ian? Well, yeah, Lynn is a, a great friend of mine. She is the uh, National Director of Signature Events at JDRF, with it, which is just a behemoth of a uh, nonprofit out there. And she is uh, in charge of just a tremendous number of events, over 70 or 82 events uh, each year uh, from across the country and up in Canada. And they raise over $70 million a year from these events. So just a huge undertaking that her and her team uh, are in charge of, and, and they do it just with absolute precision and so she has a, just a tremendous wealth of knowledge to share with us today and it was just a great conversation. You know, I I said to Lynn in our conversation, you know, they really have figured out the success formula. And when we look at the business world, we talk about franchising. And the reason that franchising works is because somebody somewhere along the way has figured out how to do something right and how to duplicate that over and over. And that's what JDRF have done when it comes to signature events. And let's learn how she does it now. So, hey, Lynn, we know that this morning you're sitting up there in Monument, Colorado, and uh, you're in your home office, and you're overlooking Pikes Peak and the Air Force Academy. Is that right? It definitely is, Danny. It's a beautiful day here in Colorado. And you have a bit of a connection to the Air Force, or a big connection to the Air Force. I sure do. Um, I was privileged enough to serve in the Air Force for 20 years and actually retired out of the Air Force Academy. Wow, very interesting. And uh, today... Uh, you are the National Director of Special Events with JDRF, and how did you manage to land there? So um, I actually started volunteering for our organization, JDRF, back when I was actually assigned at the Air Force Academy after my son was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes and 
started uh, working uh, with the local chapter on the board of directors. And uh, when I retired, um, I was asked to come on staff and uh, continue to follow my passion. So I started out in the chapter office here in Colorado Springs, and then uh, I've held various positions uh, across the organization since then and have been with our signature events team now for almost uh, 11 years. Would it be fair to say that JDRF is probably, if not the largest, uh, one, certainly one of the nation's largest special event planners, or I mean, uh, not special event planners, but I don't think there's anybody who does more in the special events uh, arena than JDRF? I think that's probably correct, Danny. I think in uh, all told between our galas, golf events, and uh, other special events, those are uh, various other t- types of events that we do. Uh, this past year, we raised over $83 million across the country. And how many events would that have been? Uh, we did about 84 galas, uh, about 30 golf tournaments, and about 25 other special events. Um, wow. So it's a, it's a pretty hefty load, um, but it raises great money and puts a lot of that money uh, to research. Wow. We want to talk to you today, Lynn, if we can, about what uh, you call the JDRF Signature Events Model. And you folks have really kind of figured out the formula. And, uh, you know, when we look at the business world, you know, the success of any franchise is that it's, it's something that can be duplicated because they have discovered a success formula. What is that success formula? And what does it look like for a special event, in your opinion? Well, I will tell you the the number one um, critical item to have for uh, success for this is our volunteers. Our volunteer leadership is second to none, and um, new people keep stepping up each and every day for the cause. And when we um, basically share our model with them and ask them to take a leadership role, uh, the answer is always yes, emphatically, and then how much more can I do over and above what you're expecting? So I think our, our volunteers are really the backbone of what we do and how we're so successful. So let's talk for a moment about volunteers, and one of the big issues is volunteer retention and volunteer, well, the big issue is volunteer turnover. So how do organizations retain their key volunteers from from year to year? Because it's a big problem when volunteers are shifting out and changing from event to event. Yeah, so um, our volunteers are extremely dedicated. They either have a direct connection to type 1, or they know somebody or love someone that has type 1, and um, the problem with type 1 is uh, because we've not found the cure yet, we have continued to work on our treatments um, and the, um, you know, making it easier to live with it. Um, our um, volunteers have had children that have been diagnosed that are now adults. Um, we've had adults diagnosed um, and they get involved because they want to cure this disease, not only for themselves, but for future generations. And so our volunteer base is very dedicated. Um, I, I guess I would say that uh, they're probably the most passionate group of individuals I've ever met in my entire life, and I'm one of them. Um, but I find people who match my passion each and every day, and, and they use their connections, they use their business connections, their personal connections to leverage other individuals and companies to join us um, in our signature events and to help raise all this money. I, I think, you know, as the diagnosis rate of type 1 continues to rise 4 to 5% every year, um, I think our shortage of volunteers um, is, is not going to happen, but the people who are getting behind this cause are, are making a difference, and they're the reason that we're so successful. 
That's great, Lynn. Uh, this is and this is Ian from Winspire. Uh, what, what would you say, you know, to maybe the audience listener out there uh, who's maybe at a smaller organization who might be struggling with, uh, you know, finding the right volunteers for their events? Uh, you know, there are certain ways that you can incentivize or, uh, you know, properly recruit volunteers to come and enroll them, you know, in in the cause and in the event. You know, Ian, I think that every every cause um, has a group of following. It's just finding those individuals because people inherently are good people and they want to do good. So I think making sure that you're aligning uh, your mission and your cause to individuals who either have a passion for it or you ignite that passion in them and show them what the world can look like with your cause or your mission um, being fulfilled. I think, I think everybody wants to do good, and I think just finding those ways to reach out, um, going to Lions Clubs, Kiwana Clubs, service groups, everybody um, wants to help other people, and I think just reaching out and making sure that your network is, is very expansive is the key to getting the right volunteers. Lynn, want to get back to the signature events model now. So you've assembled a team of ambitious volunteers, and let's just go through some of the major touch points in organizing a successful event, starting at the beginning. So one one way, one place, good place to start, I think that that you and I have discussed, Lynn, is is about creating that event community. Can you can you touch on that a little bit? Yeah, um, we always start our planning at least a year out. Um, nobody can build a, a million-dollar event in a couple of months, and if they do, it's usually not sustainable. So we have a year-round planning model whereby we try to recruit and, uh, and get our gala chairs along with our honorees, our corporate development chair, and uh, all the key leadership in place. So everybody has uh, responsibility and uh, is part of the planning process. I think when people are part of the planning process, they have ownership in it. So our our planning starts a year out, and we start recruiting our, our, our volunteers, hopefully for a succession plan. So year after year, we know who's going to be in those key leadership positions for us as we're going into the next year. And in a lot of our markets, we actually get an opportunity to announce it um, at the event. Like, don't forget to join us next year when we honor XYZ. So um, I think that's part of the success of, of what we do. And I think uh, most organizations have this year-round planning cycle that um, really bodes to the success of, of their events. And when do you start talking to the public then, now that you've assembled and educated your core team, when do you start reaching out to the public and communicating to the public, and how do you go about that? We start communicating to the public as soon as we have it. Um, like I said, we announce it at the gala um, for the next year who we have. Uh, we immediately follow up with a, uh, you know, a thank you for joining us this year and don't forget to join us next year. Um, like a, it's, it's almost a thank you and a save the date all at the same time right after the event. Everybody wants to know how much you raised if you didn't announce it, and they want to know what they're looking forward to. And then periodically throughout um, the rest of the few months, um, another three or four months, we will send out a formal save the date that won't be a thank you. It'll be a save the date. And then, uh, um, of course, our invitations follow a couple months prior to the event. And uh, during all of this, we're gathering uh, new committee members. We're gathering people who are associated with the the honoree and the gala chairs, et cetera, and we're starting our planning meetings then. So it really is a year-round process, and 
Um, if the word of mouth isn't getting around from our committee members who are getting excited even nine or ten months out, um, then we make sure that we're sending out touch points all along the way via social media, via print pieces, um, you know, uh, via newsletters, etc. And I imagine at the same time you're talking to sponsors, and let's talk maybe about how we go about cultivating new sponsorship and retaining existing sponsors. Yeah, that's a very, very, very good point because uh, corporate sponsorship is about 27% of our budget, and they actually help fill our ballroom not only with the T1D community but with also our local communities. So what we do to retain our sponsors from previous years is sometime within the next 30 to 60 days after the event, uh, we'll go meet with them and we'll give them a return on investment package. We'll show them all of the exposure that they got. Um, we'll show them uh, where, how, many, how many of the, uh, the retweets, the likes, the, um, the, just the expansion of their network that they um, garnered from our event. Um, and then we'll just talk to them. We won't resolicit them right then. We'll talk to them about what they liked, what they didn't like, what they'd look for for next year, and try and get them to help us build a package that will be um, most beneficial for them. We'll also ask them, do they have any other companies that they think might be interested in joining us next year? Did they have a good time? Would they like to bring some of the companies that they do business with? So that's another tool for recruitment. Not only um, is it stewardship of your current donors that um, you really want to know who it is they're networking with, but it's also um, a way for us to recruit new companies. In terms of just out-and-out out new companies and new sponsorships, um, a lot of our gala chairs and our honorees and our corporate development chairs will suggest new companies. They'll say, hey, I want you to reach out to my network or, or I'll reach out to my network for you and I'll be able to fill you know, uh, five or six or ten tables in your ballroom and that will be new excitement and energy and, and spending dollars that we'll be bringing to the event. So we kind of go at it in a couple of different ways, but those are the two primary ways that we do for uh, – corporate sponsorships. Well, I really like hearing that when you have that that follow-up meeting with your sponsors after the event that you're not doing the ask at that time. You're just there to say thank you, to review the results, and uh, just to solicit uh, other referrals before you, you go back to them and, and, and make that ask for the, for the next upcoming event. That's really cool. Yeah, I think it's important to thank your sponsors first. Uh, we, we call it a, we don't want to do a thanks and meeting. It's a thanks and, oh, by the way, will you recommit? We really need to hear and we need to process what it is they, that they thought the event um, brought to them and then what else would they like to see. So I think being thoughtful that way and going back and, and uh, crafting up what we believe um, after our conversation with them um, would be important to them is is the key to that relational um uh, uh, sort of uh, relationship as opposed to a, just a transactional one where, you know, you give them the sponsorship package and, and they go, I'll take that one in the middle, um, thank you very much, and, and you walk away and then you don't see them again until you get to the event. I, I think there's a big difference in, in how we treat our sponsors and how I think our, our sponsors um, feel like uh, they are valued by us as an organization. Absolutely. And I think that was one of the biggest aha moments for me in my discussions with you was how you customize your sponsorship packages, right? I mean, how, can you maybe go into that a little bit, uh, you know, the doing sponsorship levels and letting them pick it out versus tailoring the package to the, the individual sponsor? 
Yeah, I think that's really important. Um, of course, everybody has a typical sponsorship package. You know, you have to have something on the shelf to, to start those conversations. But I think the one thing that we've done, especially over the past eight, uh, probably six or seven years, is, is really um, gone to them with a, hey, we know, that, we know from our conversations that these are things that are important to you. But we have a, a few new opportunities that are coming up with technology, of course, um, you know, there's, a, there's different opportunities um, for sponsorships, and sometimes that's more important than just two tables in your ballroom with valet parking and upgraded wine. Um, a lot of companies are looking for something more, and so I think um, giving them the option to tailor those packages and finding out what's important to them really um, kind of sets, sets your event apart from other organizations where they receive a sponsorship package in the mail with a nice little letter on top saying, thanks so much for your sponsorship last year. Uh, please pick a level and let us know um, how you're going to join us this year. Right. I think really making it personal and listening to their needs is so important. Great point. Lynn, let's jump ahead uh, to event day now and go over the guest experience as you like to see it presented. Well, I think event day um, actually starts uh, a little bit before then. Of course, you have to educate your audience before they get there, um, and you have to let them know what to expect. And so we like to make sure that we've uh, done all of that in advance of the event. Um, but when they arrive on event day, um, our event day, of course, is very long in terms of staff and volunteers that are setting up for it and all of that. But the minute our first guest hits the door, um, typically for us it's usually 6 o'clock, um, we want them to forget about absolutely everything else except the fact that they're there to have a good time and to raise money for a great cause. And it's our job to make sure that that uh, we have buttoned up every detail from no lines at the bar to having an absolutely fantastic silent auction, a little bit of entertainment in that time, make sure that they get to connect with, with uh, individuals they haven't seen lately. I mean, it really is a networking event. It's the place to, to see and be seen. So you need to make sure that everything is perfect there, the music isn't too loud, um, and then making sure that you stay on the timetable that you commit to. Um, people only have a specific period of time that they're going to give you, and they're only going to give you your attention for that time. So making sure that you move into the ballroom and you've got a good plan to, to move in there, whether it's a big reveal or whether it's part of the pre-function space. And then, and then probably the most important thing is making sure that every individual that gets up on that stage has a specific purpose and a specific time that they're going to speak. Um, we know that people's attention spans um, and, uh, keep going uh, shorter and shorter because of so much stimuli that we have that every, every um, mission message deliverer on that stage needs to do just that. Um, they need to do it in a very impactful manner, and you need to get to the fundraising um, and the most important part, the paddle raise, um, in uh, an appropriate amount of time. And then you need to just let them party at the end. They need to have a place to celebrate and they need to dance and feel really great about whatever it was that they raised that night because that's the part that they'll remember um, the most is we raised a lot of money and then we just had an absolute uh, fantastic party afterwards. I take it, I'm just assuming that the weekends are your preferred nights for to have your galas then? 
Uh, they certainly are. Most all of our galas are on a Saturday evening. However, I will tell you, um, we do have a couple of select markets that have it during the week because they're major metropolitan areas, and we know on the weekends that people just vamoose out of town. Mm. Um, and those work just as well. People set it aside as a date on their calendar, and they tell people, hey, I'm going to be late into work tomorrow because I've got the JDRF gala. So I think you just have to know your audience and, and make sure that, you, that you're listening to their, their wants and needs. Lynn, can you walk us through what you think is an ideal timeline uh, for event night, uh, assuming it's a Saturday night? Now, you've already uh, told us that the doors open ideally at 6 o'clock. And at what point do we start moving the guests to, to, towards the tables to be seated? And then what happens? Yeah, so, um, you know, 5 or 5.30, we could have a VIP reception if we have a VIP that's there, and that's for your top sponsors, et cetera. But normally, most of your guests will arrive around 6 o'clock. Um, because we have mobile bidding, of course, we don't need to keep them confined in an area for, you know, a two-hour period. Around 7.15-ish, 7.20, we usually do a soft opening of the ballroom. We invite people to make their way to their tables and start meeting their table guests if they didn't already know them. About 7.40, um, we usually have the first set of announcements asking people um, to take their seats. The program's about to begin. And usually about 7.45, 7.50, we'll have the MC or some sort of, um, you know, somebody greet uh, the guests and, and um, thank them for being there. And then uh, uh, just a few opening remarks. Um, and then we'll either have our um, honoree presentation then, um, which is, of course, the person that most people have come to see or the company that's being honored. Um, and then we'll let, them, we'll let them break and we'll let them have dinner. And uh, we'll have dinner served and we'll give them some, uh, some quiet time to converse at their table. You can either take that break um, and give, allow them that break or know that they're just going to talk over the next set of speakers. So um, we give them that break and we come back usually around 8.20, 8.25, and we start our live auction. And depending on how many items we, that we have, um, we're usually done by 9, 10, 9.15-ish. And then we go right into our, um, our raise the paddle, what we call our fund to cure. Um, and we have a, a video or inspirational speaker or both. Um, and then we go right into um, the largest part of our fundraising. About 49% of what we raise is in our raise the paddle. And uh, so by 9.30, by 9.45, quarter till 10, um, the, the after party opens and uh, they're celebrating. And if you're not there by 10 o'clock, um, you'll start seeing some, some vacating of your tables. And, and that's the one thing you don't want to happen during the largest part of your appeal. Well, this is all very interesting. Uh, Lynn, I know that you organize some of the largest and most successful uh, events in the entire nation and probably do more events as an organization than most organizations for sure. You've figured out a formula, but some of the things you're saying go contrary to what a lot of the fundraising auctioneers think. When we get together, start talking about when's the right time to have the paddle raise. Uh, should we start the live auction while people are eating dinner? Uh, should we have a dance? Is, is a band necessary? But you folks have got it figured out. So it's interesting. Um, you know, the auctioneers will talk till they're blue on the face as to when you should do the paddle raise. And, and a lot of popular thinking out there is to do it before the live auction. What's your reason for holding it off until after the live auction? Yeah, so um, we, we do it after the live auction because, um, number one, we do start the live auction usually while people are still eating. We give them about 20 minutes or so. Um, normally in a ballroom of five to 600 people catering will tell you, I need about 20 minutes to get all the 
all the salad plates up and the dinners down and to re- refresh and recharge the wine glasses, etc. Um, so we do start it while people are still eating. So, I mean, there is, there's a lot of excitement there. Um, like I talked about, our corporate sponsorship is between 20, 25 and 30% um, percent of our um, total revenue that we bring in. And, and we know that not everybody is going to be moved or understand um, our uh, paddle raise. So what we do is we do the live auction because that, that is kind of like the warm-up to the, um, the paddle raise. We, we want everybody to be able to go home feeling good that they were able to give either through the silent auction or if you have a raffle or a drawing. Also with the live auction, um, you know, almost everybody can participate at least at the lower levels and they might get some really exciting items and they may spend a lot of money, um, which they do in our ballrooms. Um, so we want everybody to be able to give. And then when you get to the to the paddle raise, I think everybody is really warmed up. They've had a great time. There's been a lot of hooping and hollering and, and excitement because people are winning fantastic trips and, and puppy dogs and all of those sort of things. And then we, then we take the lights down and, and we refocus everybody on the mission. They're all excited, um, but they quiet down. You, can, you could hear a church mice in there. We, we are very impactful in our, in our mission moment there. And then we go right into the paddle raise. And I think it works really well for us. I think going into a, you, you, we really think about, um, I guess the, the crescendo of when you really want to, um, be impactful. And I think letting people have a really good time from the silent to dinner to the live auction. And then you just kind of stop in a moment of time. And you really hit them emotionally and you tell them how they can make a difference in the lives of people living with type 1. And that's, that seems to be the sweet spot for us. Hmm. It makes perfect sense what you're saying. Uh, let's talk about the mission moment. How do you present that? Is that through video or live speaker or how do you do that? Yeah, so we do a combination of, of things. Um, a lot of our markets will do, um, you know, after the live, you, you know, as an auctioneer, how, how rowdy it is. Um, you have to kind of control the crowd. So um, if you can take the lights down and do a video of some sort, um, it'll be a, you know, it could be a three to five minute video, just kind of um, educating uh, the audience about either the particular family or the individual um, that is living with type one and the impact that it's had. Um, And after the video, we almost in all cases have a uh, a speaker. Um, they're usually tied to the video in some sort, um, and they just kind of uh, kind of wrap a bow in the emotional part that you don't get when you're just watching a video. Um, we've had other sort of creative ideas. We've had um, poems. We've had sort of theatrical um, outlying sort of things that have been done on the stage. Um, we're, we're not opposed to anything that will, um, I guess, pull at the heartstrings uh, with hope and not despair. So uh, we're always open to new uh, and creative ideas there. Who actually conducts the paddle raise or the fund uh, a mission or fund a cure? Is that the auctioneer? The auctioneer does do that. We uh, we we utilize the uh, the MC or the whoever's been reading op- auction descriptions or whatever. We do a lot of bidder recognition in our ballroom at the higher levels. So if somebody's giving a hundred thousand, two hundred fifty thousand, etc., uh, we will publicly thank them um, by utilizing their name. So the auctioneer will call out the number, and then the MC um, or whoever's doing descriptions will then say thank you so much to Mr. and Mrs. John Smith. We so appreciate your support, and and we'll go down to a certain level 
um, whereby we'll use um, audio recognition, um, so, but the auctioneer does all of that. So for us, it's really important that the auctioneer understands our mission and understands um, uh, specific keywords and feelings um, that elicit uh, more uh, money. And then, of course, if you've got a match or a challenge, that has to be perfectly executed and the auctioneer has to be 100% bought in to um, how this is going to be done and, and uh, where those um, areas of opportunity might be and when to push and when not to push. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it can be a, uh, that can be a real explosive situation if, if that's not handled properly. It certainly can, yeah. but I, you know, all the auctioneers that we work with, um, you know, you all are such professionals that we really enjoy our relationship um, and we enjoy educating our auctioneers about our mission and having them really embrace our mission and help us raise as much money as possible. Excellent. Lynn, let's just back up a little bit, talk for a moment about the live auction. Uh, how many live auction items do you have uh, at a typical event? So um, at a typical event, I would say we have between eight and ten. Um, we have some outliers. Uh, some of our some of our markets will only do five or six auction items um, and still raise you know a hundred to two hundred thousand uh, dollars. We have one particular uh, auction that does thirty five live auction items. What? We can all gasp now. Uh, yeah. Oh my <laughs> and, gosh. And, and, and I'm going to do a shout out to our Seattle chapter because that is. Our Northwest chapter in Seattle is, is, is the one and only that we have. They do 35 live auction items, and, they, and we do our, our uh, paddle raise in the middle of that, around auction item number 15 or 20. But it really is a cultural thing for them. Um, I don't know that I would try that anywhere else in the entire um, country or the world, for that matter. But uh, they love it. They have a five-course meal, and they stay throughout the whole thing. It starts at... Six, they're done at 11 and their entertainment comes on and you will hardly ever see a table leave anytime during that period. That is amazing. That is a one-off. It certainly is, but yeah. it works. Yeah, well, good, good for them. Um, the, uh, how, long, how long does it take them to get through their, their auction, the, that many live auction items? Um, it takes pretty much the whole evening. I mean, they have a few speakers at the beginning when they get into the ballroom at about 7.30. Um, you know, each auction item takes between three and three and a half minutes to auction off. Um, and they get about 20 items in and they stop and they do their they do their emotional appeal. And then they go right back to their live auction and, and they just continue on. It's actually part of their entertainment. They actually produce all of their live auction items. So even if you can't bid on them, you're at least entertained by um, all of the things up on the stage. So it, it really is a great, great production, and I'm going to put a plug in for them. They're celebrating their 30th anniversary this year, and they've got some great things lined up. So I'm really excited to be there in March. Fantastic! Now the JDRF is moving a lot of of live auction items every year throughout your network. What are some of the most uh, uh, successful items that you're seeing at, at the live auctions, or the most popular so, items? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I I think the things that sell best for us is um, things that are exclusive, things that you can't go out and buy or purchase. 
um, or, uh, you know, just something that you can't have access to. So any of your sporting events, um, exclusive sporting events, Super Bowl tickets with meet and greets or packages before that, um, we have one very generous donor that gives us um, trips down to their place. It's called Diamante in Los Cabos, and it's got in-home chef meals. It's got unlimited golf. It's just uh, something that you can't have unless you're part of that community, um, and those go really, really well in our ballroom. Um, one of the things that I know that uh, some people uh, agree with or don't agree with is we also have another generous donor that, uh, that donates uh, a couple of puppies to our auctions every year, and they're going to some of the best homes ever um, based on what, what they sell for, and also she keeps in contact with them all the time and watches them grow up and provides advice. So it's not just a one-time purchase of a puppy. It's actually the support of a, of a community of people who, who love their their fur babies um, and they become part of that community as well so we're very fortunate that we've got great donors that give us uh, fantastic uh, items for our lives that's great that's great Lynn Uh, as far as the live auction is concerned right so let's kind of dive into your average you know maybe 10 item uh, live auction is there a strategy that you have in terms of which items are placed where is there kind of a um, you know kind of a flow to the live auction or is that do you leave that up to the auctioneer well, um, it's a it's a two prong question there. So um, the majority of our um, auctioneers come out of Stokes Auction Group, and they provide a service along with us. They've been with us for almost 19 years, um, and they actually help us sequence the items. So the way we like to do it, as as I talked about, is um, we're bringing people back from dinner. They're still they're still a little clinking of the the silverware. People are still chatting a little bit. So that first item needs to kind of be a little bit of a softball item. Let's get everybody's attention. Let's make sure um, the auctioneer has played a game with them to make sure they've got their bid card in their hands, not somebody else's or a bid card at all. Um, so that first item is is actually kind of a uh, a, a softball where we want we want to get as much as we can, but it usually comes in at a lower price point, so everybody can raise their bid cards and feel like they're a part of the event. And then we work towards a crescendo, um, whereby you know item number five, six, seven are really your heavy hitters. They're the ones that are going to go for twenty, twenty-five, thirty thousand dollars, and then we continue down that until um, usually our last auction item is probably one of our most popular um, because by then everybody's engaged, everybody's involved, they've been having fun. Um, And if there is an emotional tie to an auction item, such as our children's projects where our T1D kids and adults have uh, put together a special item and it's done basically with love, that will usually be our very last item because that is just a natural transition and um, for us to go right into our mission moment. I love it. I love it. How many of, of your items in your live auction are you able to sell multiples? Well, um, usually it's just a couple of them. Um, as a as a um, attendee and participant participant myself, um, nobody wants to know that every single one of their uh, their auction items can be doubled up because then you're going to get caught while you're helping to raise more money. I, um, so I, I usually encourage our chapters to see if we can't. Uh, double up maybe just one or two of the most popular items that either have gone really well in the past or that we know are going to go fantastic in the ballroom. And um, so that's that's kind of our strategy in uh, in looking at double ups. 
Tell me a little bit about your guys' attitude towards consignment. I know it's, um, you know, obviously it's what Winspire does, uh, what we provide. Uh, when is it something that you guys may use or consider using, and uh, and you know how how is it how successful has it been? It's a great question, Ian. Um, overall, of course, um, we have very generous donors that give us amazing auction items. But I believe that there is a place for consignment, um, especially when you have donors that have very specific needs. One of the things that we do go out and ask some of our live auction uh, winners is, what what would you like to see in our live auction next year? And that's really being donor um donor-centered. And so when we hear things such as, oh, we'd love to have a private wine tour in Napa, or we'd love to go to the Masters, or we'd love to see the Emmys or the Oscars, um, a lot of times we don't have the reach for that. So we do reach out to our partners at Winspire, and uh, we certainly have a great partnership with you all as well. Many, many years you have you have provided those live auction items that have gone for extraordinary amounts of money, and then the execution and the redemption of those have been flawless for our guests. So um, whereby we don't fill our live auctions with um, with consignment items, we do rely on our relationship with Winspire to make sure that we have a well-rounded auction that really meets the needs of the people in our ballroom. Excellent. Uh, Lynn, what needs to happen post-event? So much needs to happen post-event. Uh, the, the thank yous and the stewardship of all of our donors and our supporters and our companies um, and our leadership, um, it has to be done and has to be done uh, quickly and meaningfully. So um, it's, not, it's not uncommon for um, our, our biggest spenders and our donors to get a call on Sunday around noon, um, and it may be one of our kids, it might be a committee member, it might be um, somebody from the leadership, just saying thank you. Um, uh, you made our night fantastic, we're still excited, we're giddy, we had a fantastic evening and we couldn't have done it without you. So I think immediate feedback to those people who have made your event successful is imperative. And then I think some of the things that we talked about, you know, you do need to tell everybody how much, how much was raised and you need to thank everyone who had a part in it, your auction donors, um, all of your leadership. It's great to take your committee out to um, lunch um, a couple weeks after the event, give them time to process and talk to them about um, the impact that they made and, and uh, find out what we can do better next year. And then, of course, the return on investment meetings with um, some of our our corporate sponsors, our higher-level sponsors, um, and then, of course, the year-round stewardship of those, um, those fund to cure or, their, or your paddle raise. You need to let them know periodically um, what their money has done and how their money is being used and the impact that it's making. Hmm. You talked about taking your committee out to lunch. How do you recognize your volunteers at the end of the event? So at the end of the event, we always send our volunteers home. Um, first of all, we take care of them throughout the evening. They are they are giving of their hearts and their time, just like everyone else. Make sure that we've got a great dinner for them. Make sure that uh, you know that they're not paying for their own parking or any of those sort of things. Um, make sure there's snacks and water and stuff for them throughout the evening. And then as they're leaving, we make sure we give them a little gift. It might be a it might be a gift bag with a, a personal note and a bottle of water and a snack and a T-shirt or something in there just to let them know how much we really appreciated them. And then we'll follow up. We'll either get our, 
our chairs or some of our staff members to write personal uh, thank you notes to them, just letting them know the impact that they had on the evening and, and inviting them to other events throughout the year where they wouldn't volunteer, but they might get to just be, you know, somebody who's participating in the fund. So I think our volunteers are, as I said at the very beginning, are just as important as our donors and supporters um, in the whole equation of our signature events. Fantastic. What are some of the other events that uh, JDRF hosts throughout the year, other fundraising events uh, besides your big gala events? So we also do golf events uh, across the country as well. And then our other uh, very large program is our One Walk. And those are held in communities um, all throughout the country, along with our um, our Ride to Cure Diabetes. And that's held in six different locations um, throughout the country. It's a weekend of fun and fundraising and just camaraderie. In fact, I'll be participating in our Ride to Cure out in Death Valley in October this year. Wow. It's 100 grueling miles in wow. one day, um, and there's nothing like it. Awesome. Wow. That military background serves you well in that one. <laughs> <laughs> that and the camaraderie of all my friends who are always encouraging you, even in those long, desperate stretches of, uh, of the Furnace Creek Ranch Road. That's great. Well, I'm going to kind of try to take a, a different tact here. I would love to get, because I think, you know, all this is such useful information, but it's also really to, useful to hear kind of some of the, the things that you see out there that uh, maybe need fixing, right? You've been to your fair share of events, more than just JDRF, but what are kind of your top three biggest mistakes you see uh, that happen uh, maybe at a big gala that, that can really impact the bottom line? So, yes, I'm uh, probably not a very good participant in other galas, but I do like to go to them because there there are a lot of causes that are are near and dear to my heart. I think the the biggest uh, offender in terms of mistakes made is is not um, making sure that your audience is educated before they get to the event. Nobody wants to walk into an event not knowing what to expect or whether they need a ticket or they don't need a ticket or are you going to have my name there? Um, I think uh, fear of the unknown is probably the worst. Um, and to make your guests go out and search for information is is not very uh, donor-friendly. So I think really just making sure that people are fed the information that they need to arrive, know where to park, how to get into registration. Um, is it an open bar? Is it going to require tickets? Do I need to bring cash? Is everything going to be credit card? I think just that education and information for, for guests really sets the tone for the evening. I, I feel much more um, willing to do that generally joyful, inspired giving when I don't have to think about any of the details that are, are behind it. So I think that's number one for me. Um, number two for me is um, making sure that anybody who's going to be impactful in the fundraising is is just that. They're done before you start asking for um, for funds. I, I've been at many events where you're sitting there and the live auction starts and, and you have no idea why you're even there. What's this cause supporting? Um, what Where's this money going to go? And how can I make a difference? Um, so I'm not as inspired to give either in the live or in the, the, the paddle raise unless I really know what's going on. And Sometimes I've seen the speakers be um, presented after they've actually asked for money, and and that that to me is is a big miss. 
And then probably the, the third thing is not following your timeline. Um, like I said in uh, uh, the previous question, I think um, people only have a specific period of time where they're going to pay attention. So you need to capitalize on that, and you need to make it succinct, and you need to be respectful. You can't sit in a chair for three hours and, and feel um, inspired to give. So I think yeah, you know, just being really respectful of your guests is so important. That's great information. Just want to circle back to point number one, uh, communicating information to guests so they know what to anticipate on their arrival. How do you get that information out to out to guests? Uh, how, how can you reach possible. them all? Yeah. Yeah, the easiest way possible is you pick up the phone and you and you call the telephone host or you call the individual and you introduce yourself and you thank them for um, wanting to come to your event and, and you get the best way there is to communicate um, with them. Is it via email? Is it would they rather have a written copy of this uh, dropped in the mail on the Monday prior to the event? Or um, certainly the most important thing for us nowadays with technology is um, are we are you okay with us sending you information via text? Can we send you a link so you can and start bidding early, and you get exclusive uh, that exclusive opportunity to really um, peruse and browse the auction at your own timetable, whether it's while you're getting your hair done on Saturday morning or whether it's at the dinner table on Friday night when you're deciding what it is you want to bid on. I think finding out how to communicate with your guests, it, it's the old-fashioned way. Nobody, nobody wants to pick up the phone anymore, um, but it's, it really does build relationships. When you hear a voice on the other end, I think that's the best way to really gather all that information and find out how people want to be communicated with. That's great. You mentioned uh, mobile bidding and uh, opening up the bidding before. Uh, would you mind sharing what, what technology you guys use? Certainly, yeah. I'm I'm proud to say we've had a partnership with uh, with One Cause, which was formerly BidPal. Uh, we've been with them for almost seven years, and we've uh, worked along the way with them in terms of the technology and uh, when is the appropriate time to open up an auction. And they've been so helpful, helping us not only open up uh, auctions two weeks in advance, but what's that sweet spot um, for us? It's usually Thursday afternoon. We want people to have that t- that leisurely time to to get through all the items and, and place watch lists and place their, their starting bids and maybe even a maximum bid so they don't have to worry about it between now and Saturday. Um, so we've got a great partner in them. That's great. And do you, do you guys publish your live auction items on there too, but, but maybe don't accept bids? We do um, because we want to accept proxy bids um, if at all possible. And so we give information for them to call the office and, uh, and place a proxy bid so we can make sure that even if you can't be in the ballroom with us that night, you still have an opportunity to give and be a part of the event. And Lynn, who handles the execution of that proxy bid on night of event? Who handles that? So the chapter staff will work um, with the auctioneer and make sure that we have, uh, have the appropriate representation in the ballroom to handle that. Okay, so can you explain that to us, a proxy bid? There will be some of our listeners won't know what that means. Of course, I'm happy to. So we have uh, such great live auction items that we know that there will be people sometimes because of date conflicts, etc., that would like to bid on an auction item if they were in our ballroom, especially in the live. And so we'll publish the live auction and we'll say, if you can't join us, um, give us a call. We've got a, a, a form. We get their authorization and their credit card information and we ask them what would be the highest bid they would be willing to go um, and so we will have somebody in the ballroom bidding on their behalf with their bid card, um, and we will go up to that amount. Um, I will tell you some of our uh, audience have gotten pretty sophisticated, and, and they'll actually ask us to give them a call 
and be a kind of a phone a friend. Um, so if they start to see the auction item going um, higher than what they um, had authorized, they'll ask us to give them a call so we can get verbal authorization for them to continue uh, bidding on their behalf um, at a higher amount. So it really is kind of fun. Um, it, it doesn't happen in every ballroom and, and every event, um, but when it does happen, people feel really good about it because somebody feels so passionate towards our cause that they want to give even though they can't be with us that night. Lynn, to summarize here, do you have any parting advice that you would give to nonprofits who are listening to our podcast here, Events with Benefits? Any, uh, any final words of thought or suggestions? Yeah, I think just my final thought is, you know, uh, putting on events is, is, is grueling um, for people who are the organizers and the planners, etc. Um, find ways to make it fun. Um, it is definitely pressure-filled, um, but it's a great way to engage an entire different community to your cause. Make sure that you're finding those people that are going to make it fun and that are going to have fun doing it. Um, and put down some basic practices of what you as an organization want to do and what you want to accomplish and know that you can't boil the ocean all at once. Find two or three things each year that you can do and do well and then build on those and I think you'll find the success that you're looking for. Fantastic. Well, this has just been amazing. Lynn, we want to thank you very much for sharing your expertise and being so transparent with us here today. Oh, thank you all. I appreciate it. So, Lynn, just want to ask if uh, anybody wants to reach out to you, maybe they've got questions or they want to support JDRF, uh, where can people contact you? Oh, I appreciate you asking that, uh, you know, because JDRF's mission is to keep people with T1D healthy and safe until we deliver the prevention and a cure. So if anybody wants any more information, they can certainly go to our website at JDRF.org, and we would definitely appreciate their support. And I assume that uh, because you hold such wonderful events, attending one of those in someone's market would be a great idea, and we can find local events on that same website? That is correct, yes. Okay, wonderful. Thank you, Lynn. Thank you. So we want to thank our special guest, Lynn Page, National Director of Signature Events with JDRF. Uh, Lynn, you're, you've been so transparent with us here today. We really appreciate your expertise, and especially we appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you all. I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for listening to the show this week. For show notes, special offers, or to listen to previous episodes, you can visit us at eventswithbenefits.com. Please also consider subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. And if you enjoyed the show, do us a favor and write us a review while you're there. If you have any questions or feedback, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at hosts at eventswithbenefits.com. We'll see you next time.